Good morning. I was trying to get Pastor Rob before service to kind of mess with Sean a little bit and, and say that this was his ceremonial uh, ordination toga. And uh, it's a very ancient ritual, very spiritual. But he didn't, he didn't think that was very nice, so we didn't do that. But anyway, we'll get to that in a second. If you got your Bible today, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 27, the first book in the New Testament. Chapter 27 and, and verse 50 is, is where we're going to be today. And uh, as you're turning there, it's generally thought to be um, inappropriate to discuss a hangover on Sunday morning, generally. But I've come to the conclusion that there is a kind of post-Easter hangover that afflicts pastors, and it has nothing to do, I suppose it could be, you know, eating too many peeps or too many Cadbury eggs, uh, a kind of post-Easter, like, oh, you know, and, and, um, and the reason I know that is I'm, I've been asked to speak every single Sunday after Easter <laughs> somewhere, not always here, I'm not saying Pastor Rod's hungover, right? but, but I'm always asked to speak the Sunday after Easter, and I kind of get it, because Easter, in many ways for the church, this is the Sunday after Easter. Easter is the Super Bowl, or possibly, we probably should say the Super Bowl is the Easter of football, but anyway, it's, Easter is the Super Bowl uh, for, for Sunday morning worship, and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus as you did um, last week, and I, maybe like some of you, was out of town last week, and so I was with uh, one side of the family in another state. And we celebrated the resurrection. We, we had a great time of singing and preaching. But there was one thing about their Easter service that I'm assuming that you did not do here. And that is, after we had our time of worship and, and announcements, the back doors opened, and they had kind of a center aisle. And in walked four pallbearers in a casket. I, I promise you that's not why we have a center aisle today. I just want <laughs> to, this was for a wedding. No, I'm, I know I'm the prop guy, but um, <laughs> in a casket, and they walked down the center aisle, and they had a stand, kind of like this sort of bench up on the stage, and they placed, no explanation whatsoever, right? Just They placed the casket there, and and I was thinking, I mean, they were, I was like thinking maybe what you were thinking, like if somebody pops out of that thing, I'm out of here, right? I will grab the minivan and we'll be gone. We're not, like, I don't, what is going on with the casket, right? And, and that's from a guy who, honestly, the first week I ever preached here nine years ago, I brought a live goat. Um, some of you remember that. So if I think a prop has gone too far, uh, it has. And so... They preached the entire Easter sermon with a casket on stage, and they preached what many of us preach on Easter, that Jesus defeated death forever, that he conquered death, hell, and the grave, that he destroyed, he defeated sin, and at the end of the service, they ushered the casket out, of, no one came out of it, they ushered the casket out of the room, and everybody cheered because Jesus conquered death forever, was the message. Amen. I agree with that. And then we went home. 
and we turned on the news. And we went back to our Monday morning life. And the post-Easter hangover set in in a different way. Because Christians around the world began to wonder if the casket thing was overselling it. And what I mean by that is, it becomes pretty obvious when you turn on the news the Monday after Easter that death is not gone from the universe. It becomes painfully obvious that sin, while born on the cross, is not extinct from our lives. And you begin to wonder with the post-Easter, what's, what's that about? What's that about? And so here we are, the Sunday after Easter. And I want to ask one question today. And it's about that sense of like, well, if Jesus conquered death, well, why doesn't it seem like it, right? How do we, here's the question. How do we balance as Christians what I'm going to call the already and the not yet? of Jesus' victory. How do we balance the already? This is, these are terms that theologians use quite a bit to talk about the kingdom of God, that there is an already to the kingdom that has come through Christ, through the Spirit, through His death, through the resurrection. But there's also a not yet. And somehow those seemingly contradictory phrases or words, they sort of coexist in this present moment where we say that Jesus has conquered death, he's defeated sin, and yet when we turn on the news, it's pretty obvious that there's still some issues here even after Easter. So how do we balance the already and the not yet without falling off of one or the other side? There's an old cowboy saying that um, there's two ways to fall off a horse. <laughs> Which I say, well, you've never seen me ride a horse. There's all kinds of ways, right? But the two ways to fall off the resurrection horse or the kingdom of God horse, on the one side is this sort of delusion or naivety or denial that doesn't take seriously enough that the world is still broken even though the tomb is empty. On the other side of the kingdom of God horse or the resurrection horse is this sort of gloomy, despairing, depressing Christianity that doesn't take seriously enough the reality of the resurrection. And somehow we have to balance the already and, and the not yet within the Christian life. And the, the Sunday after Easter seems to me to be the perfect week to talk about that. And so today we're going to talk about that in Matthew 27, beginning in verse 50. It's a passage that begins right where we left off last week with the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. But it also talks about what I'm going to call the other resurrection. And just fun fact, might be the strangest passage in the entire New Testament. <laughs> so let's read it. Matthew says this. Matthew 27, verse 50, it says, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, this is Jesus on the cross, he gave up his spirit. 
And at that moment, the, the moment of his death, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. And then here's the really weird part. The bodies, it says, of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And that's the last we hear of that, right? Just in case you missed it, it's a short passage. Here's what it says. At the moment Jesus dies, the veil of the temple is torn in two, the earth shakes, the rocks split, and it says the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. This is a weird passage. <laughs> it's a passage that's mentioned in no other gospel, only in Matthew. There's all sorts of unanswered questions. When I read this in class one time, one of my students was like, you mean like zombies? <laughs> right? What, what is the deal? I've never heard a sermon preached on it, probably for good reason, right? It's, it's odd, right? But I want to put up a quote from one of my favorite American authors. This is a lady by the name of Flannery O'Connor. I love Flannery. We almost named a daughter Flannery. I, to which I will tell Penelope someday, um, you're welcome. <laughs> she writes, she's a Christian. She writes short stories, writes a couple novels. She says this, I have seen the truth, and the truth has made me odd. <laughs> I've considered that for my own tombstone, um, to which Brianna says, if I write that, she's writing, I'm with stupid. So um, <laughs> that's the other <laughs> Just FYI, I've seen the truth. I have this conviction about Christians, and it's a conviction I got from Stanley Hauerwast. He says, the world would like to cure Christians of our oddness. Now, to be fair, there's different kinds of oddness, <laughs> right? If you have the kind that's like, if I can just get the right assortment of bumper stickers, I will change the world, right? That's not the oddness we're talking about. He says, the world would like to cure Christians of our oddness. Because part of becoming like Christ is being deconformed to the image of the world, right? One of my professors has a definition, his name is David Wells, his definition for worldliness is any mentality that makes sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange is worldliness. And Harawa says the, the world would like to cure Christians of our oddness. And so I've developed, this will be no surprise to you, a fondness for certain oddities. And I'll tell you why. They're interesting. And as one of my preaching professors once said, boredom is a form of evil. Boredom, to, to steal and change a, a quote from Graham Greene, boredom is a lack of imagination. And while this passage is many things, 
it isn't boring. It's odd. It's odd. And because it's odd, I, it, in fact, I, I wrote an article on this passage recently for Easter, and it was published in an online uh, site. And this is the picture they chose for it. <laughs> Jesus, like, happy Easter, Jesus and the walking dead. Uh, it's, it's odd. And, and there's, there's questions that we haven't even mentioned yet. I'll throw up a few of the questions that are raised by this, this other resurrection passage. Why in the world are these holy ones raised from the dead at Christ's death? You would think they'd be raised maybe at like the resurrection or maybe at the end of history, right, when Jesus returns. Why are they raised at his death? That seems odd, right? A second question. What did the citizens of Jerusalem think? It says they walked about the city and lots of people saw them. And some scholars think that these were martyrs, people who had died for their faith. And so you wonder if like the Pharisees were like, isn't that Baruch? Like, didn't we stone him to death? What's he doing like at the market? What, in the, like, what did they think when they saw these people walking through? The, does, the text doesn't tell us. doesn't tell us anything about that. Last question. What happened to them? It doesn't tell us that either. Right? We assume that they didn't just live forever in some sort of you know, zombie-like existence or immortal state, right? But we don't get any information about what happened after this. Matthew just sort of throws it in in a sentence or two and, and leaves it hanging. And all of those questions give us this sense that the passage, the story is just, it's kind of odd. It's kind of strange. Um, but none of that is to me, none of those to me are the oddest question. The oddest question, and thus for me the most interesting one, is this. If, if these people were raised at the moment of Christ's death, and they were, it tells us that right in verse 50, why don't they emerge from their broken tombs, because it says the tombs were opened up, right? until after Jesus' resurrection. Because it says that too, even though I'd never noticed it in all my years of reading the Bible. I did the math. This is like the only kind of math I can do, right? We know when Jesus died. We know what time of day he died. We also know approximately what time of day he rose from the dead, Easter Sunday morning. And from that moment of his death, when it says these dead were raised, their tombs were broken open, and to the moment of resurrection, when it says they walked out of their open tombs, there are approximately 40 hours where I assume they weren't like on their smartphones, <laughs> but they were sitting in their broken open tombs waiting for Easter Sunday. And I assume there's not a lot to do in your tomb. I mean, you can only fold the grave clothes so many times. You've seen, I, I can't fold them at all. Right? What, what is that about, right? We took, a, we took a drive, I mentioned last week, to, to the in-laws house for Easter. It's six hours. Six, a lot less than 40. Our DVD player broke. It felt closer to 40. 
I mean, it was, it was torture for the kids, right, to wait for six, six hours without a DVD, six hours without, you know, Moana, um, 40 hours in a tomb when, like, you probably don't even, like, do they even know what's going on? They just sit up and just sort of, you know, just wait? What, what? It's, it's an incredibly odd passage, and here's what I want to do, okay? I don't want to, like, just bore into trying to prove to you that this happened, because I can't, right? I, I can't, like, dig up some rock that proves it happened, right? But I want to focus on why it matters. I want to focus on why it's actually relevant. And it's not just some sort of piece of biblical trivia. But it actually matters for Christians today. And the reason I say that is I think we have some things in common with these raised up saints, these raised up bodies. We have some things in common with them. And if we can grasp some of these things, it'll help a little bit with the tension between the already and the not yet of our post-Easter existence. So that's what we're going, that's where we're going today. The first thing, first insight, has to do with the spirit and the role of the spirit in our raised up existence. We could say it this way. The Spirit of God is what brings forth resurrection. The Spirit brings new life. And it's true for Jesus. Paul talks about the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead and how it lives in you, right? So it's true for Jesus. It's true clearly for these raised up bodies, get to that in a second. But it's also true for us. Paul elsewhere in Ephesians says that the Spirit, we were dead in our trespasses, our transgressions and our sins, but God raised us to life just like these bodies by His Spirit. The Spirit brings resurrection. It says this in verse 50, the passage we just read. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And it's at that moment that the dead come back to life. Some translations, you can see the one on the screen, they give it a lowercase s because spirit can just mean like his breath. Like that's what you do when you die. You, you give up the ghost, as they say. You, your breath ceases, right? But the early church didn't read it this way. The early church gave it a capital S. As if one of the ways that the Spirit goes out and raises people to life, whether we're talking about the people in the tombs or whether we're talking about us, is because of what Jesus did on the cross. That the Spirit of God, capital S, brings forth resurrection. One of the places that the scholars go when they're dealing with this weird passage is another weird passage from the Old Testament. And it's in a book called Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 37. And it's a passage that some of you know because you were in choir at some point, And you had to sing a song about um, them bones, them bones, them dry bones. We won't sing it. I'll, I won't, I'll, I'll let you off, right? 
And it's this very strange passage about a, a valley of dead bones. But it says that the Spirit of God blew and the dead raised up. It says there was an earthquake and the ground shook. And it says that at that earthquake, the tombs broke open, right? So like if you remember the passage we just read, like all the lights on your dashboard should be blinking. It it seems to be that this very odd passage in Matthew is a kind of foretaste or fulfillment of the passage in Ezekiel. And in both places, it's the Spirit that brings forth resurrection. Why bring that up? For some Christians, it's been said that the Spirit is the forgotten God. That we can conceptualize a father like God the Father because all of us, at least biologically, have a father. We can conceptualize Jesus because he has a face. He has a name. He walks around. He does things. You know, we can see a person, an incarnate person, but the Spirit can be mysterious. And in some cases, the Spirit, for some Christians, is kind of scary. Right? There's this sense that if you emphasize the spirit, you might turn into one of those crazy, like the front, this aisle might be used for me running around and you know, doing strange things if we emphasize the spirit too much. But the spirit is what brings forth resurrection. The spirit is what knits us together in community. The spirit is, is, is the one who convicts of of sin. And so like, why do we emphasize that it's important not just to like go to church, but to get plugged in into like a deep, meaningful community? Well, one of the reasons is we encounter the Spirit in community, and it's the Spirit that brings us to life in new and important ways. Your own resurrection, in one sense, is a product of the Spirit's Work. The Bible says nobody can even say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is with us after the resurrection and unto the end of the age. Second insight about the Spirit. We could say that the Spirit comes also from the cross. Most of us are familiar with the idea that the Spirit comes at Pentecost, and that's absolutely true in a new and powerful way, but the Spirit's working all throughout the Bible. At one point, Jesus breathes on his disciples, and it says he gave them his Spirit. He he gives up his Spirit on the cross, and the tombs break open. So the Spirit is connected to the cross and not just to Pentecost. There was a scholar by the name of Tom Smale, the British scholar, so you know he's smart, Um, elbow patches and all. Uh, (laughs) He was an academic, and we academics, I can say this as one, are not known for being the most charismatic uh, people. We're analytical, and we're, you know, and he he went to a gathering where a a young lady got up and she prophesied, and it was kind of odd for him. But this is what she said. She said, there is no way to Pentecost except by Calvary. The Spirit is given from the cross. 
And he said, that stuck with me my whole career. And the reason was that these, these three events of, of cross, resurrection, and Pentecost are knit together as a kind of holy trinity on the Christian calendar. And we can't understand God without all of them. And that the Spirit, if you get the Spirit apart from the cross, you can get into all sorts of weirdness. As if the Spirit is sometimes opposed to Jesus or doing something different than Jesus, right? You can get into triumphalism and a kind of maybe prosperity gospel or an odd sort of health-wealth concept. But if you get the Spirit with the cross, then, then you've, you've got something. The Spirit of God knits us together, raises us to life, and calls us to service. The Spirit is active in raising these dead bodies in the, in the passage, and the Spirit is active even now in us. Second movement, second insight. We could talk about the passage and why it's relevant because it says something about what I'm going to call the discipline of holy patience. The discipline of holy patience. I said the, the thing I've never noticed about this odd text is the waiting. The waiting in the tomb after they've been raised up for 40 years hours like what kind of patience does it take to sit for 40 hours in a tomb that's been opened right? I, I get it if it like the stone's still there like you don't have a choice <laughs> but what kind of patience um, does that does that involve and I think like we said earlier there's some commonalities between us and the people in the story like them it was a death that brought us life. Like them, we've been inspired, breathed into by the Spirit from the cross. And like them, we also have to wait for a new creation to go fully public. I wrote this, this last week. To be in Christ is to have gained a foretaste of the resurrection. A foretaste of the age to come. The veil is torn. The heart of stone has been shattered. And yet, this new life remains somewhat incognito. It sits humbly the week after Easter, waiting amid the stench of death and slowly airing grave clothes. Part of the Christian life is to learn the discipline of holy patience as we wait for this resurrection that's already happened in us. We've been raised with Christ, as Paul says, to go fully public, to go fully, uh, to be fully apparent within the world. But patience is hard. <laughs> uh, my daughter Penelope, the one we almost named Flannery, um, struggles with patience. Like all of our, all kids struggle with patience. The other night we went into Penelope's room and she was crying after, after we put her down for bed and we said, Penny, what's wrong? And she said, I just want it to be morning. 
because then I could eat breakfast. <laughs> and I, I, I've been there. I can get that, right? Like, I, like she, loves, she loves morning because there's breakfast, right? And it was difficult to think, I got to sit here and wait for this number of hours before I can get up and go waiting. Patience is hard, right? And so what kind of patience does it take to sit for 40 hours in an open tomb? Maybe something like the kind of patience required to go on trusting in a God of resurrection while sitting in an oncology ward or sitting in an ICU. Maybe something like the kind of patience it requ- is required when you're battling depression or when you turn on the news and see what's happening in places like Syria over and over again. Something like the kind of patience that's required when you're going through the aftermath of a divorce that maybe you didn't choose and you never saw in your story. The kind of patience that's required when you're dealing with a rebellious teenager and you don't know what to do. With a sickness that isn't getting better as quickly as you thought. With a house that isn't selling as quickly as as you'd like, the school year that just won't end and it's April. Maybe like the kind of patience that that my wife is praying for right now as we have two weeks to go before the birth of our fourth child. To live the Christian life is to learn the discipline of holy patience. Because just like the people, the saints, the believers in this passage, we wait alive in a world that still smells a lot like death. And yet we wait in hope. Because as the great, the great preacher S.M. Lockeridge once said, he said, it's Saturday, but Sunday's coming. To live in the post-Easter existence is to embrace the discipline of holy patience. What do you need to be patient about today? What are you anxious about? What are you hurried about? Martin Luther said that hurry isn't of the devil. Hurry is the devil. What do you need to be patient about? Lastly, number three. We need to also say that patience is not the same as laziness. Patience isn't synonymous with a total inactivity. And the passage also emphasizes at the end here what what you could call the, the call to go and show with regard to these raised up saints, these raised up saints. It says that they they did leave the tomb eventually and they walked about the town. And you think, why in the world did God do that? Right? I mean, was he trying to scare people? I mean, what is that, you know, is that, if we go back to kind of the walking dead thing that the, the, you know, like what, why, what, it seems to be, at least for us, right, that one of the ways that people will come to believe in the resurrection of Jesus 
is by seeing your resurrection. By seeing what Jesus has done for you. And they can't go back and see him walk out of the tomb. But they can see you. They can see the new life that's been breathed into you by the Spirit. And so evangelism, at the end of the day, is not about being clever. It's not about having lots of degrees, master's degrees or whatever, in theology or apologetics. Evangelism is, is nothing more than going and showing. It's nothing more than engaging the world with the resurrection that's already taken place in your own life. Paul says, we were raised with Christ by His Spirit. And the reason God raises up people like us, imperfect people like us, that often still have the scent of the tomb clinging to our lives, is that through that, other people are going to come to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We were raised up spiritually so that other people might come to believe in Jesus Christ. There's a call to go and a call to show. It's the, it's the saying of the blind man, right? When they, they question him about is this Jesus guy, you know, and he says, look, I don't know. Um, all I, I don't know a lot of stuff, he says. But all I know is this. Once I was blind and now I see. Once I was dead and now I'm here. Once I was mired in anxiety and sin and addiction, and I'm not perfect, but I've been raised up. And there's this call in the post-Easter universe to go and to show based on just what's happened to you personally. And so the waiting and the showing coexist. Just as the already and the not yet do. So here's the call today. Very simple. Two words. Two words. Be patient. Be patient. It's not the final Sunday yet. It's still Saturday. But we have been raised up. And we wait alive in the abode of death with the hope that the God who raised us, the God who raised Jesus Christ, will not leave us waiting. Be patient. And in your patience, go and show what Christ has done for you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for Resurrection Sunday last week where we celebrated the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Lord, I also thank you for the other resurrection in which you raised up spiritually people like me who were dead 
in our transgressions and sins. I thank you that you raised us by your spirit. I pray for anyone here who needs a resurrection. I pray that those here who, who do not know you would put their trust in you, the God who raises the dead, both then and now, that they would enter into relationship with you. I pray also, Lord, for those of us who have been raised, like these saints in the story, but we are waiting, alive in the abode of death. I pray for patience. I pray right now for people in this room who are struggling with with issues that require patience in their marriage, in their parenting, in their job, in their education, with their health. Give us patience. But Lord, also give us the courage to go and show, even in the midst of our waiting, that you have done something for us. Once I was blind, now I see. Once I was dead, but I'm alive again. May we go and show even, even as we wait for the final unveiling of your resurrection. But I pray for all of those things today and I trust that you will answer because you're a God who raises the dead. And it's in the risen name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.